Blog Talk Radio. differently, which means you can get the fastest internet available with equal upload and download speeds from 50 to 500 megs. So you can upload 200 photos before your favorite song is finished. Click the ad and switch to files today to get our best offer ever. Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your Facebook account or blog talk radio. Well, tonight's show will focus on the typical actions in probate of a slaveholding estate with David Patterson. David Patterson is a public historian, and he studies people who lived in 19th century Upson County, Georgia, especially those who experienced slavery and Reconstruction. A civilian employee of the U.S. Navy by day, he spends his leisure hours researching and writing local history. David has helped manage the Slave Research Forum at AfroGenius.com since about 2001. David immigrated to the U.S. in 1958 from Scotland and was granted U.S. citizenship in 1975, and he lives in Norfolk, Virginia. So let me give uh, just a warm welcome to David Patterson to research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, David. Glad I'm so glad that you're on, David. Well, before we get started, and I'm I'm just so looking forward to this discussion. Uh, just to help us understand what inspired you to get into African American research. Well, I love a challenge, and you know, one of the most exciting days of my life, as you sort of alluded to when you were reading my brief bio, is when I was sworn in as a U.S. citizen. Uh, in 1975. 
Uh, and, and on that day, all U.S. history became mine. Uh, I'd been a history major in college. I went to University of Oregon. Um, but I joined the U.S. Navy, uh, did a career, really didn't read a single book. But when I retired after uh, almost 20 years, I returned to history as a hobby. And I did not regard any research areas as off-limits to me. In fact, I preferred the challenge of, of researching what no one else had researched before. And in my case, since I at the time was living in Upson County, Georgia, I decided I was going to uh, research the history of people in Upson County, Georgia. And the people who were most understudied in that, in that area were the slaves and the freed people. Um, I knew from, uh, from having uh, researched for a railroad book that I had written that the basement of the Upson County Courthouse had drawers full of antebellum records in bundles tied with string and red ribbon that had been sitting there gathering dust and unread since the clerk had filed them a century and a half earlier. Now, one day I was, I was there in the, in the courthouse and a, and a local family historian remarked to me, you know, it's really too bad we can't help black researchers, but there just aren't any records for the slaves. You know, I knew that wasn't true because I'd handled hundreds of slavery-related papers in that courthouse, and I'd seen the names in the deed books and the lists in the probate record books. But I also knew that most local researchers began their antebellum research with the 1850 and 1860 censuses because those, as, as many or most, most uh, people in the audience will know, that Schedule I, the free inhabitants, provides lots of information about free people in the counties. Schedule II, the slave inhabitants, does not list the names of the slaves. So in 1994, I took the challenge on myself to begin a project to see to what extent I could recover the identities of any and all people who had ever lived as slaves in Upson County using court records and supplemented by all other primary source material that I could get my hands on. That project 20 years later is still ongoing, but currently identifies somewhere between 5,000 to 7,000 people. Well, you know, it is simply amazing that someone would even make that statement to you. That it's a shame that, you know, there's, there's no research, there's no information, and you knew the information was there. It's just that it was overlooked or not deemed valuable. Well, you know, well-beaten paths on, uh, in genealogy, uh, they don't realize that there's different paths you have to follow uh, in, uh, prior to 1865 for slavery research. And if you don't know the past, you can't see them, and uh, I guess it's invisible to some people. Right, right. Well, David, I, I also, before we even get into the topic for tonight, I posted uh, the cover of your, your new book. In his own words, Houston Hartsfield Slavery, Holloway Slavery, Emancipation and Ministry in Georgia. So tell us about this book and, and how it relates to the topic for tonight's show. Thank you, Bernice. Uh, that book is uh, forthcoming from Mercer University Press. I'm not quite sure. It was supposed to already be out, but uh, the, uh, the, the, the press that prints the Mercer University books broke. And I don't know when they're going to get fixed, so hope, hopefully sometime this year. But, uh, um, oops, are you still there? Oh, yes. 
Oh yeah, okay. I I I kicked I kicked my own microphone. Um, okay. Yeah, um, the the uh, uh, the book actually began by something one of my favorite research tools, Google. I was googling Upson County, and as all of us, I'm sure, do, we love to look for stuff that we haven't seen before in Google. And I love Google Books. Google Books is one of the best research tools that any of us can use. So, you know, and I decided I was just going to go see how far out, you know, they, when you, you get those Google book returns, by, with the, and I, yes. you know, 10, 20, and I was out to about page 30, you know, and, and all of a sudden this reference to the, to, to Hartsfield, uh, House of Hartsfield Holloway showed up that I'd never seen before. I'd never heard of this guy, didn't realize that he was from Upson County. There's a long story why not, but it turned out that the, uh, manuscript of his autobiography is online is not the catalog is online and it's and it's got keywords in it but the people who made up the the catalog entry omitted Upson County from the keyword search so it had never popped for me as an Upson County source even though he was born there but there was a an obscure reference from 1976 that identified it so Google's Google Books great source my hero anyway so I went. So I went to the National Arc, not National Archives, Library of Congress. Got a copy of the book, and edited it. It was fascinating. He. Uh, it's never been published before. Uh, he was born enslaved in about 1844, and died in 1917. He he writes uh, an autobiography that's about 24,000 words long. The first half of the book deals with his time in slavery. Uh, he he was sold three different times had uh, four different uh, masters. Um, he um, then got, oh, he joined the, uh, what was what was then called the uh, Methodist Episcopal Church South, which was the, uh, the southern branch of the Methodist Church that had split from uh, the other half during, uh, during slavery, over the issue of slavery. Um, he, he had joined that church, and he, he was a Sunday school teacher at the time that uh, emancipation occurred. Um, sometime afterwards, he, d he discovered the AME Church, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, uh, which he had never heard of before, got quite interested in it, joined that church in 1870, and was a preacher until 1883. He was a blacksmith by trade. He talks about his, his itinerant ministry as a preacher. He talks about his family. He talks about life in, in Georgia. During Reconstruction, he talks about his life up until um, about 1913 was the, the last entry he had in his autobiography, and, and he died in 1917. So it's, it's very int it was very interesting to me, uh, kind of hard to read. Um, he was self-taught during slavery. He, uh, he had books, and he taught himself uh, uh, next, to the, next to the fireplace in the kitchen where he, where he stayed. So... Uh, Anyway, the book's going to be coming out. And how does it relate to tonight that many of the sources that I used to trace not only him and his family, but also other people he mentioned, came from probate records. I wanted to find out everything I could about the 230 people that he named and listed in his book. Um, and most of them had been formerly slaves or were slaves at the time that he's talking about them in the, in the autobiography. And so I turned to deeds and, and probate records to find many of them. 
And so the same kinds of research that uh, all of our listeners use to, to do ancestral research, I also use for historical research and found a lot of information about the people that appear in this book. Okay, well, walk us through what we're going to hear tonight. And for I hope that all of you were able to download the uh, chart, uh, Typical Actions in Probate of a Slaveholding Estate. I posted the link so that you all could get that. And also there's an explanation. So just tell us, first of all, what we're going to hear tonight. Tonight, I hope to walk through the process of administering a slaveholding estate. We, we, we've all heard about probate records. We've all heard about wills and so on. But I would like to put all these different records together in order to show what their purpose was, to walk through the process, and to show how those records are related to each other, how they sequence, and what are the records that are and possibly the most profitable for researchers to find what they're looking for as far as ancestral research. So it's going to be a walk through the process and the records that are most probably profitable for slavery research. Okay, well, take us through this process. We're eagerly waiting. Okay. Um, as, uh, as, as many people know, uh, the probate process is the process by which when, when a person died that their estate is, is managed and divided up among the heirs. Uh, we're really interested in this, in this talk about the slaveholding estates and uh, I'm going to talk about, um, first of all, beginning with the event that the slave owner dies. Slave owner dies, the first thing that's going to happen is one of two things. If the slave owner left a will, somebody is going to carry that will to court. And the court that they would, would take it to goes by different names in different jurisdictions, but generically we're going to call it probate court. Right? In, in, it happens that in the state of Georgia, where I've done most of my work, it, uh, back then, it was called it the inferior court for ordinary purposes, and after 1851, it was called the court of ordinary. But it's generically the probate court. Um, someone is going to take the will there and is going to try to prove that it is indeed the valid will of the deceased. They're going to call on the witnesses that, that, that may be surviving that signed as, as uh, witnesses to the will, they're going to call those people in there and to prove that it is, in fact, a valid will, which is, you know, where we get the word probate from, uh, the Latin verb probara, meaning to prove, to test, to try, and to examine, and, uh, and, the, and the past participle of the verb being probatum, meaning having been proved. Um, that is the first step. Um, just but just because the, the, the will is proved, we're going to refer to all the records as probate records, even though uh, they don't involve the will, because they're all filed in the same court. Um, now, only about half of the, re of the uh, slaveholders had wills, at least in the areas that I've studied. And I'm actually, I actually don't care that only half of them had wills, because I actually like uh, intestate estates better. Intestate estates are estates in which the there is no will 
The person who died did not testify. Therefore, it's called they are intestate. They didn't leave a testimony or a will, but they still go through a process. Um, so it, you either have a will or you don't have a will. And then there's some terminology that we, that we need to, to learn. If you had a will, the court will appoint an executor to execute the terms of the will. If, if the executor is female, she will be termed an executrix. Um, usually in, in, in records, you'll see this uh, um, abbreviated EXC apostrophe R for executor or EXE uh, apostrophe X for executrix. Sometimes people you know, scratch their head over what the heck that is. That's just the abbreviations for executor or executrix, depending on whether it's a man or a woman. If the person did not have a will, the court is going to appoint someone to administer the estate, and that person is going to be an administrator, or, guess what, if it's a woman, an administratrix. So you're going to see ADM apostrophe R, administrator, and ADM apostrophe X, administratrix. I only go over that because when you're reading these records, you come across these strange abbreviations, that's what they're about and you'll see them all over the place. Okay, so only about half the, the people who died as slave owners had wills. The other half didn't, and I said I didn't care. Why is that? Okay, the advantage of a person leaving a will um, is that uh, usually the wills name the specific heirs and state their kinship to the deceased person. That's helpful because it helps you to track what happened if those people received slaves out of the estate? It'll help you to, to uh, know who they were, perhaps where to look for, and how they were related to the deceased person to help you track the, uh, the folks that they inherited. Uh, wills may name slaves and their kinship. Surprisingly, most slaves did not, I mean, excuse me, most wills did not name all the slaves. They may name a few, they may name them all, or they may name none. Um, but, you know, every will is different depending on how the person drafted it. Um, one thing that, that, that you do get from a will, though, is oftentimes the person will refer to previous deeds of gift to the heirs. They'll say, I'm not going to give son Johnny um, as much as I'm giving to daughter Jane because he received a previous gift of slaves. And that will key you to look for other records not in probate, but in the deed books for deeds of gift, that kind of thing. So it, will, it may clue you to, to other previous uh, transfers to, to the heirs. Um, the kind of will that you really hate to see is the, is the one that absolves the executor or executrix from making any returns to the court. Fortunately, you don't see that very often, but how dismayed I was when I saw a will that said something to the effect of, in order to prevent unnecessary expense to my estate, I hereby declare that my executor shall not be required to make any reports or returns of this estate to the probate court, which meant there was nothing else, just the will. So that was really disappointing. Fortunately, Yes, that is disappointing, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's very disappointing because, you know, they, they, the, uh, the executor followed to the letter and didn't, didn't file any other documents. Fortunately, if, if there was no will, the, the state law requires an administrator or administratrix to, to report to the court, so you're not going to have that problem. Um, estates with wills tended to be settled quicker and leave fewer records than intestate estates in general. Kind of 
my impression. Now, estates without wills. They often have more records than estates with wills, and often they dragged out longer. And so there are more opportunities to make records. Uh, and because uh, the, the administrator or, or administratrix appointed by the court had to, had to file these records with the court, there was no will telling them they couldn't do it. So I really like estates without wills. Um, now, the first thing that was going to happen, inventory and appraisement. Shortly, usually within a few weeks, a few months after the person died, there's going to be an appraisement and an inventory of all the property in this state. Now, we're talking about slaveholding estates, so what we're really mostly interested in is the human property in the, in the estate. And most of the time, you are going to see a list. It'll, it, may be list it may be called inventory and appraisement, or it may be just called inventory. Sometimes it's just called appraisement. It'll be recorded where the other um, records are, are recorded in the book. Oh, let me talk about records for just a minute. Um, okay. Where, where they are. Where they are. There are two kinds or two categories of records we're going to see: loose papers and books. Um, of course, when people made a report to the court, they were bringing loose papers, loose lists, loose reports to the court. Many courts. Uh, have preserved those loose papers in what people commonly call the estate files. And that's where your original papers are. The advantage is that because they are the original papers, um, they are the primary source that uh, is less likely to have transcription errors in it. Um, the disadvantage is because they are loose papers, people have stolen them over the years or have decided mm -hmm. that, their family history is more important than the next person's family history, so they take them away with them. Or, in some cases, courts have cleaned the house and thrown them away. But the loose papers, always look for the loose estate paper files. The other source is books. Most jurisdictions, most states, required certain records to be recorded in books for permanent records. So they would take these loose, these loose records that were submitted, copy them into the book, and then, and then file the loose papers in the files. So um, the books, hopefully, unless something has happened to the records of the court, the books are going to be there even if the loose papers aren't. Um, again, because they have been copied by clerks, there may be some transcription errors. Um, but I have found both of those records extremely useful. In fact, to tell you the truth, I did most of my work from the books because uh -huh. the uh, loose records are oftentimes very patchy. But sometimes you can only find records in the loose papers because the law only required the clerks to record certain types of records. For example, we're going to uh, see, I'm going to talk about annual returns and vouchers later. Um, although annual returns were required to be uh, recorded in Georgia from the early 1800s, vouchers were not required to be recorded until eight, starting in 1851. So there was a period of time when the vouchers were not recorded, but they are, if they exist, in the loose papers. So that's it, books and loose papers. Look for both of them. Um, normally, when people have microfilmed the collections, oftentimes you're lucky to see um, online uh, digitized images, which is usually from microfilm. Uh, like FamilySearch.org has uh, has a lot of the or all of the uh, Georgia 
uh, probate microfilm digitized and online, but those are the books for the most part. The loose papers are very often only in the courthouse or if they've been transferred to, a, to an archive somewhere. So you might have to do, to do some traveling to see the loose papers. Mostly it's just the books that have been um, microfilmed. Okay, that having been said, inventory and appraisement. You're going to see, when you see the inventory and appraisement, all the property. You're going to see the household furniture, the farm equipment. You're going to see the farm animals. And you're going to see the people. You will probably see the people named. Most of the, most of the time they're named and they always have an appraised value. You can use the appraised value uh, to, to estimate certain things about folks based upon what, what we know about their age. You know, are uh, usually very young children, low appraised value, teenagers and young folks fairly high, uh, peaking out probably in, the in their 30s, and then their, their value declining unless they were highly skilled, like a, a blacksmith or a carpenter or some trade. And then very old people might even be valued at zero. Um, sometimes the lists will have age. Sometimes the lists will have parental relationships, usually mother and child. Sometimes lists physical condition or health as an explanation about why the valuation was what it was. They may say someone is sick may see someone is old or someone is crippled or missing a leg, something like that. Lists, that, you know, there was no single way to keep these lists in the appraisement. You may find them organized in the in following ways. Men, followed by women, followed by boys, followed by girls. That's kind of dismaying when you get when you see that because that kind of blows your chance to find the uh, family relationships within that list but we will find ways to recover the family relationships later. But another way is sometimes the lists are by family order, usually mothers and children. Um, slaveholders didn't necessarily regard fathers as being an inherent and part of the family for uh, probate purposes. Um, mothers and children, sometimes the, uh, the, you'll find that list. And when you do find mothers and children, you can safely assume that the children are listed in age order from oldest to youngest. Um, and then uh, if you have, when you have multiple, oh, we'll get to that in a minute, multiple lists, it's very helpful. But um, that's how you're going to see the, the inventory and appraisement. At a minimum, value and most of the time, name. Sometimes you find something unhelpful, like if a person only had one slave, it'll say, uh, Negro woman, $500. And you go, what What was her name? You will probably find the name somewhere else. But for the most part, the names are there. All right. Next thing you're going to see is an annual return. Annual returns are very exciting, especially the longer the estate was in process, because every year the administrator or administratrix, executor or executrix, had to submit a report to the court showing their proper uh, custodianship of the property of the estate and to show that they're properly managing it and not um, abusing or squandering the property of the estate for the heirs. Now, the annual return 
would be submitted once a year, and the kinds of things you're going to see early on are a sale of perishable property. Sale of perishable property was one of the first things that was ever sold, and it was usually food and perishable crops uh, from a farm. Um, they obviously were sold because they were perishable. Um, second sale of personal properties such as farm tools, kitchenware, household furniture and clothes, guns, all that kind of stuff. These two kinds of sales would happen uh, within the first year or so of, of an estate. Now, why do we care? Because I always look at those lists, not only just to see who's buying things from the estate, but every once in a while, every once in a while you will find that some of the enslaved people that lived on the estate actually attended the slave I mean the uh, estate auction and bid on stuff. Um, back then, uh, you would expect that the uh, um, the estate auction actually occurred at the home place of the deceased person. So, you know, whoever was living on that estate w was uh, able to see the auction going on, and if they were able to attend, you will sometimes find the slaves actually purchasing stuff. I found a uh, slave Sandy uh, on a uh, on David Kendall's estate in Epson County, Georgia, who bought a bee gum for 50 cents. Uh, bee gum was just a hollowed out piece of a log that was uh, that had been turned into a beehive. So he was planning to do some beekeeping. I've seen people buy furniture. And I saw a man who purchased a bushel of old wheat. So there's all kinds of, uh, of different things, uh, usually relatively inexpensive, that you might possibly find the slaves on the estate actually purchasing which is an opportunity to, to you know, note their names, see what they're doing, gives you a little fact about, about what the people are doing on the estate. The other thing that's well, going to happen Well, I have a question coming yeah. out of the, of the chat room, and it's, it's going back to, and, and I think I'm uh, referencing the right uh, issue, annual returns. Was this submitted to the county? Was it typically submitted to the county? Uh, and would that data, the information that's, presented, would that also be mostly in probate court? County records, and they would all be in probate court. All this, Everything I'm talking about is, is in probate court. Now, we're talking about states that have uh, the uh, inherited a common law um, court system from the English colonial period, so this may not apply to records in Louisiana or uh, Spanish colonial Florida before it became a, a U.S. territory because those, those two places used different record systems based upon a, a, a different system of law. But for the most part, the, the, uh, uh, colo the colonies, the English colonies that used the common law system have some form of probate court that pretty much all use the same kinds of records worded in the same way. Um, the rules on which records had to be recorded in books and which records had to be uh, just preserved as loose papers may vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but the records are pretty much all the same. Right. Now, there's another question coming out of the chat. Are there any records that list the overseers? Yes. You will find in annual returns, which, boy, who... 
someone set me up for an answer for that question. Yes, we're talking about annual <laughs> returns. You will, you will find um, if an estate was large enough to require the, uh, the hire of overseers, you will usually find the uh, overseers giving their receipt for their annual pay. So it'll, it'll have a receipt from the overseer for how much they were paid for, for that year and any other services they provided. Some overseers actually put their kids to work on the farm and got paid for the labor of their children. Uh, I saw one receipt where the overseer's wife had uh, made clothes for the slaves on the, on the plantation, and, and her husband, the overseer, put in um, a bill to the estate to receive compensation for his wife's labor. So you do see the, uh, the overseers um, presenting their bills to the estates and their receipt for receiving money for the services that they provided. Okay, and then there's a, another question. If the fathers are not listed with the mother and children, how can one determine who the father of the children are? That's an excellent question that goes beyond just probate records. That is a that is a puzzle that uh, that has a lot of different pieces. Probate records generally are not concerned with kinship relationships among slaves as property, except insofar as uh, oftentimes um, mothers and young children are are, uh, are kept together for convenience, obviously for childcare purposes. Uh, ch- children, children uh, above the age of eight were generally considered uh, old enough to take care of themselves without their mother, and if it was deemed to be necessary to make uh, a division of the estate among the heirs, I always loved it when they said, uh, you know, divided uh, to make an equitable distribution among the heirs. You know, kind of wondered what, what about the equitable division of those families that they broke up but that wasn't their concern but children over eight years old could be uh, separated from their families and you and and so it depends largely on how large the estate is the larger the estate the more the more uh, latitude there was to keep more and more of the, of the children together sometimes you will see uh, estates that specifically say you know um, James and his wife Mary and their 13 children other times you'll just see Mary and her 13 children, and then James mm-hmm. may be thrown in there. But you don't know if he was thrown in there just because it made the valuations all add, add up to the same amount of money, or was it because he was Jane's husband? You don't know, you, unless it specifically says that he's a husband. Now, the question was, how do you find out who the father was or who the husband was? You're probably going to have to go outside of probate records to do that, which is a whole other program. Right. Well, David, we're going to stop the discussion right now, have a quick break, and then come right back on, okay? Okay.
search at the National Archives and Beyond. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and we have been talking to David Patterson. David has been sharing with us uh, the typical actions and probate of a slave owning. Now, I want everyone to to remember that you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, and I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. So, David, why don't you continue the discussion because this is such an interesting topic, and just keep going until we can't talk anymore, okay? All right, Bernice, here we go. We're we're talking about annual returns. Annual returns, just to, in case anybody's, Forgotten I, during the break, um, the annual returns submitted by the executors or the administrators um, every year to to make a record of how they are managing the deceased person's estate. We've talked about the sales of perishable property, the sales of personal property. The one other thing that you will see in annual returns is usually the hire of Negroes. That would be the term that you'd be looking for. Every year, the people on the estate, the enslaved people on the estate, would be hired a year at a time for the coming year, and this would be reported who they were hired to and how much they earned for the estate by their hire. So this is very important information because um, this provides you other data points about the people that you are researching. It, it, you know, it, it names who they were hired to, how much, so you can get an idea of where they were, what they were doing that year, and it will also give you information. If the, if the estate's in probate for a long time, you will see that the hire of Negroes will also give you information about growth of slave families, and by families I'm talking about women and children. For example, you may see one year a woman hired with woman and child. Next year, woman and two children. You know, a couple of years later, woman and three children. And so you can track the growth of families if the, if the estate is in probate for a long period of time. Um, I found, I'll give, I'll give, I think we have time for an example. Um, sure. When I was uh, looking in Upson County, um, I happened to find a a nice little mini example um, of an estate um, that was that was put into probate for the benefit of the orphans of a man named William W. Arnold, and the guardian was returning these annual returns. Now this is a guardian return, but it's exactly the same format and contains exactly the same information as as a, as the probate of the estate. And what what we found and what I found in this was this estate had. Um, Girl Lily in 1827, and 10 years later, in January 1836, we had woman Lily and three children, and named uh, her three children Mary, Bill, and Henry. Now what had happened every year in between? Um, The annual returns said 
you know, that a certain person hired Lee in 1827 for forty dollars. But in January 1828, the estate paid midwife's fees. So that tells you that Lily's first child um, was born about January 2nd, 1828, when the midwife uh, annotated the bill. And by the way, the midwife's fee was $2. Um, the, uh, Lily was hired the following year in 1828 for $30. But then in October of that year, another midwife's fee. So now there are two children. In 1829, another hiring, another in 1830, 31, another midwife's fee in 1831 and 1832. Um, in 1833 is the first time that the, any of her children were, were named. In 1833, the record said, hire of boy Tom and girl Lily for $100. So now we know the name of one we know that Tom had to be her child because Tom was not part of the initial estate when it was inventoried. So since his name pops up in 1833 as a person we haven't seen before, and Lily was the only female in the estate, that has to be her kid. Um, uh -huh. 1834, she's hired again. Another midwife's fee in 1835, and so on. And anyway, then, then in, like I say, in January 8, 1836, um, the estate is, is turned over to the uh, orphans who are presumably now are uh, adult. And it's Lily and her child. Henry goes to one person, and then Mary and Will go to another person. So what we, what we learned, because there were five different midwives' fees, we know that there were probably, or had to have been, five pregnancies, of which three children lived, and we know their names. And because of the dates that we know that, that, that uh, they were born, we can estimate how old they were when the, in the estate and, and what their birth years were. We also know that because Lily was uh, distributed with her child Henry, but the other two children were not, Henry had to be the youngest because that's the way they worked back then. They would uh, give the youngest child with the mother because the mother needed, I mean, the child needed uh, a mother's care whereas Mary and Will would be the two older children, and probably because they're listed in the order Mary and Will, Mary's probably the oldest, and Will is the second, Henry is the third. So just from these, these hiring um, records and from the midwife's bills, we've pretty much been able to talk about at least the family growth of this, this uh, girl, Lily, between 1827 and 1836, all of them submitted in annual returns. Um, so that's that's a value of, of annual returns. I want to do I do want to talk about vouchers. Vouchers okay. may be recorded or may not be recorded um, in the books, but they will be hopefully preserved in the loose paper files if if your court has them. And again, we're talking about about uh, county records. This is at the county level, and these are all in probate court. Whatever court handled probate in that jurisdiction. Probate courts have had different names. Uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, in in uh, up, uh, excuse me, Georgia at this time, they were known as the Court of Ordinary. In other states, they had different names. You just need to figure out which was the probate court for the state that you're uh, researching, and then know that those are going to be in the county records. Um, vouchers. Vouchers were essentially 
to the estate, in which a, which a person providing a good or service to the estate vouched that he or she provided the following good or service, and this is how much it cost, and you know, please pay me. And then there would be a receipt. These vouchers are very useful in many cases. For example, uh, and most of them, most of them are, are kind of boring. Okay, food, clothing for the kids, um, book, school books for the white children, all kinds of boring stuff. But for, for our purposes, the stuff that's really interesting are medical records, or medical bills, excuse me, that documents medical care to the slaves. These medical bills are normally transcribed right out of the doctor's record book. You know, they have, all merchants and, and, and people who provide a service like doctors would keep record books just like they do today. And basically it was a copy of all the services that the doctor provided, the medications that they provided, and what date they provided the services. More often than not, doctors would name the person they treated. Sometimes you'll say, you know, treated two Negroes. You know, but on the other hand, you'll often find, you know, uh, pulled, a t- pulled a tooth for Tom. Um, delivered a placenta for Mary. Uh, you know, provided uh, you know, uh, provided surgery to remove uh, uh, a leg on Tom. You know, things like that. So the medical services gives you the date, gives you a name, gives you an event in the uh, in the life of the uh, of the person that you're researching or the estate that you're researching. Same with dental. Back then, um, dentists didn't do surgery and doctor work, but doctors didn't mind doing dental work, so doctors were pulling teeth all the time. Uh, Well, I have a question coming out of the chat, and it's going back to the state. Now, the question is, was Georgia unique, or are other states going to have similar kinds of records and record types? All the states, well, it's always wrong to say all, but I'm going to say that I would expect that all states that started out as British colonies, which is the vast majority of, of where we're doing our research, including the northern states, you know, while they still had slavery in the in the uh, colonial days and, and up through the 1820s until until all the uh, 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 slaves were emancipated in the north, um, are going to have similar records, and those records will be. Um, described and required by state law that'll be the, the form the form that they have to be preserved in is is prescribed by state law and they are always held at the county level so they are county records and they'll be in whatever court the state designated as the probate court i think in uh, north carolina for example where i've also done some research i think it was the court of quarter sessions, something like that. And it was a different name, but it's the mm-hmm. same function. So, yes, the answer to the question is all, all the states that, that use the, the uh, common law-based uh, legal system, as I say, except for um, Louisiana, Spanish colonial Florida, uh, because they inherited a legal system that came from France or Spain that used a... Um, a, uh, uh, basically a code system, a legal system that was originally based upon Roman law and, and, uh, and, and 
in the case of Louisiana, the Napoleonic Code, was, which was an adaptation of, of that uh, uh, inheritance. So those are different legal structures. But even there, in, if you do research in Louisiana, you're going to still see probate records. They just may not be recorded the same way or um, read exactly the same way, but you're going to find inventories and appraisements. You're going to find hiring records. You're going to find annual returns. But the way that they're the way that their process is laid out and who does it is going to be different. And I don't know anything about Louisiana records, never done anything. Right. And, and in Louisiana, you will also find uh, minutes from family meetings of which they are discussing the, uh, the estate, and, which is very interesting. It sounds fascinating, and it show, just shows how different Louisiana is. So I don't, I don't make any claims to know anything about Louisiana records. Okay, well, let's continue this discussion. <laughs> right. Vouchers. Okay, we're talking about medical care. We're talking about midwife services. Um, some, you know, sometimes uh, you wonder how many of uh, slave mothers deliver their children using um, local uh, people on the estate, you know, fellow slaves, probably a lot. Uh, but some of them did use midwives that were paid. Um, many of them were other slaves. Uh, there were both white midwives, uh, you know, free people who came and did midwife services, but there were also other slaves that performed midwife services and were paid for it. Uh, there were free persons of color who provided midwife services. And then there were doctors. In, in Upson County, it was interesting, midwives generally charge between 2 and $3 per delivery. All doctors charged $10. So there was a different a difference in the in the fees. Uh, sometimes doctors were called in because uh, the delivery was a difficult one, or there was a there was a problem going on. Um, okay, uh, other kinds of vouchers that you're going to see in the annual returns are from merchants that sold goods to the slave masters. Generally, these these are uh, really make your eyes glaze over. You know, sugar, coffee. Uh, napkins, dresses for the girls, and clothes for the boys, fishing rods, all kinds of all kinds of everyday stuff that you might expect. But then, then you will find something like, and I use this in my book, um, a slave man, Neptune, goes to the store and buys um, a gallon of whiskey. He has a note saying he can buy it. Um, you you may find a note saying um, that a slave person bought a lock because, you know, slave cabins had locks on them to keep other people from coming in and taking their stuff. Uh, they, most, uh, most slave uh, households had a chest that they kept things in that, they were, that were valuable, probably had a padlock on it, and some of them had padlocks on their doors. So, um, so there were pat slaves buying padlocks, knives, buying clothes, hats, shoes, you know, they were better quality than what they were getting from old Massa. So there was a lot of, you will find merchants selling stuff to slaves, and if they bought it on credit, if you bought it, if they bought it for cash, you're not going to see it because these, these things are only um, lists of goods bought on credit. But say old Massa wrote a list and said, I mean wrote a note and said, go to the store and buy yourself some shoes. Uh, enslaved person goes to the store, buys some shoes, hands him the note, 
uh, Merchant makes uh, an entry in his book. You know, at the end of the year, he, he uh, takes all his uh, um, credit customers, writes them a bill, and sends it to them. You know, and there it is, you know, Slave John uh, bought a pair of shoes. You owe me a dollar. So there's that. There's some other that are other things that are useful to to substitute for um, vital records. For example, sometimes you'll see the local carpenter submits a bill, coffin for Negro woman. There's a date. Now, it, from other records in the estate, you will see that a certain person disappears from the records. Sometimes the uh, annual returns will say the following people died this year and the following children were born to the following mothers. Uh, that isn't usual, but it but it's, happens often enough that it is worth looking for. They will, they will say who died, who was born, and who the mothers were that gave birth during the year. Now, you want to know exactly when they, they died or when they were born? Look, you, to, to know when they were born, look for the midwife's fees. You want to know when they died? Look for a, a bill for a coffin. It'll give you the date because... Um, at least in Georgia at the time, it was uh, all coffins were made to measure. You, you didn't go out and buy a, you know, there wasn't a coffin shop with pre-made coffins. They, you took the measurement of the person, you built a custom coffin for them, and you buried them 24 hours later. So whatever date of the of the bill is for the coffin, the person probably died a, a day or so prior. Gives you a death date. Um, Another thing that you'll sometimes see, not not as often as, as you might expect from, you know, reading the books and watching the movies and stuff, but you will occasionally see fees paid to people who captured runaways. You know, uh, paid John Smith $5 for catching runaway Samuel. I'll give you the date. All kinds of interesting stuff. Someone had asked earlier about overseers. This is where you're going to see the overseer's services. Great stuff. All kinds of things in the vouchers. Oftentimes, the uh, the you know the guides, the, the genealogy research guides don't even mention these records that, as something to look for. I wouldn't miss them for anything. They're they're very interesting. Okay, um, next thing that happens eventually, as the estate starts to wind down, the executors or the administrators are 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 ready to really wrap things up. Why did the estate stay under administration for so long? It may be that the, uh, the, the administrators and executors were waiting, to, uh, uh, waiting for children to get old, to an older age. It may be that uh, they were asked to keep administering the estate on behalf of the widow and the, and the children. You, you can't tell, but there may be several years involved here, but eventually it's going to come to a close. And then what happens? There's going to be two things that happen. Sale of land and Negroes, which would, generally you'll see sale of land and Negroes in a in an estate that was governed by a will. Or you're going to see a division of Negroes where the estate was a, a, a governed by um, an administrator that did not have a will that he was uh, uh, administering. Now, why, under a will, of course, the will will say what's supposed to happen to the property. For, and so if the will says, you know, give Jim and Joe to this person and give Sally and, and Samuel to this other person, you know, that that is usually going to happen. 
but any of the slaves that are not specifically um, given as gifts in the will are probably going to be sold if it, in an estate that, that's governed by a will. And that sale often is one of the last things in, in the uh, uh, probate process. It will be a public sale. It will be advertised. And the person who is administrating the estate, or excuse me, executing the estate, will have to submit a list of who he sold, who he sold them to, and how much money. That is always a record that uh, that you're going to want to to look for, um, and compare it with all the other lists previously to see how you can match up the people in the different lists. You match them up with the hiring lists. You match them up with the initial inventory and appraisement. You check every person and match them all up and so you can track them through the years. Now, if the uh, deceased slave owner did not leave a will, you're less likely to have a sale of slaves. Less likely. What you will have, more likely have, is a division. What happens there is that the administrator or executor will divide the slaves into groups that are evaluated as approximately the, approximately the same value but by each group, and they're grouped by the number of heirs that they have to divide them up by. And after they've got everybody divided up, they'll try to keep mothers and children together, fathers if they can, but you really can't tell who the fathers are, but oftentimes later in later records you may be able to identify that this was a father. But mainly it's mothers and children, and uh, the more heirs that you have to divide it up among, the more likely the families are going to get frag fragmented. Uh, the fewer heirs they are, the more children can be are kept together. So it's con more convenient for the administrators and executors that way. It's all about the okay. heirs. It's not, a, it's not about the slaves. It's not about the slaves. Well, there's a question in the chat, and the question is about that list that you mentioned. Is the list in the same section of the records as the inventory? Let's we're trying to make it get clear yeah. about the the list you mentioned. Yeah. Okay. All right. I was deficient in not mentioning this earlier. Um, the record books are written in chronological order. Remember, there's people dying all the time in every county. And and so there's always estates entering probate, being probated, and then you know, and and the process going on until eventually uh, the pro the process ends. But it's all happening simultaneously for dozens of estates at the same time. So you're going to see um, in the record books, you're going to see all these different estates um, recorded chronologically by what whenever the the uh, um, administrators or executors submitted their paperwork and whenever the court clerk got around to recording it in whatever, whatever order um, he happened to want to record it. Now, the good thing about these record books is they have indexes. Um, so if you're looking for records in the record books, you always go by the index. The, the index will either be in the usually in the front of the book, <laughs> excuse me, um, and with an alphabetical list, or in the back of the book, or sometimes they had a separate um, index that was a, a 
separate set of pages from the book that was slipped into the front. But um, hopefully you will find that there is an index. Now the index will be indexed usually by the name of the executor or the administrator, not by the deceased, because that's the person who's actually submitting the paperwork to the court, and that's the person who is accountable to the court for the for the property in the estate. So their names are the so you got to know who the executor or administrator is, and then you go to the index, look it up, and you'll see a whole string of page numbers, and the inventory and appraisement will probably be the very first earliest page number, you know, and then a couple hundred pages later you'll see another page number indicating the first annual return sale of property, hired Negroes, etc. It won't say that, but it'll give you a and then you gotta look it up. You know, and then and then a couple hundred pages later you'll you'll get another annual return. Now these books, if you've ever if you've ever played with these books, they're huge. I mean you're we're talking about uh, record books that not only do they do they weigh a lot, but their their pages I mean, they may have eight hundred pages in each book. So you know you, you that's why You'll have dozens of estates covering many years, and so you may have to look in several different books. Um, but there will be an index, and you just follow the page numbers. If the index is missing, well, then you've got a big search. Mm-hmm. There is one other one other thing I ought to mention, and that is that depending on what the state law said, and also depending on the practice of the court clerk, it, unless someone told them explicitly how to do it, they did it their own way. There are some courts you'll go into where inventories and appraisements are in one book, annual returns are in another book, um, uh, sales and divisions are in another book, and vouchers are in another book. And then you go to the next county over, which is in the same state, go into their courthouse, inventories and appraisements and annual returns are in the same book, vouchers are in the same book. You know, it, it depends on how the clerk was taught to do it or how he felt like doing it or maybe you know he did it the way he saw it when he in the county that he came from before he came there so you have to learn the contents of the books um, and they will vary from county to county even within the same state unless the law explicitly said you have to do it this way because they could do it as long as they recorded it the, the law didn't tell them how to record it they just had to record it somehow Mm-hmm. Oh, and I've also found that the names of the books doesn't necessarily relate to the contents. For example, in Pike County in Georgia, the book is, the books are labeled inventory and appraisement, but when you look in them, they start with the will. Then they do the inventory. Then they did then they did the annual returns, and they finally did the the the, uh, the sale of land and Negroes at the end. And all of it was in the same book series. It was a, maybe a dozen books, but they all had all of the records. Sometimes you'll find that the book names were assigned when the books were rebound, you know, know, maybe decades later. And oftentimes when they they would give these books to the binder and say, we need to rebind this book, he would flip it open to see what the first record was. And the first record says, you know, will of Johnny Jones. Oh, okay, this is a will book. So he'll label it will book. When you look on page two, there's inventory and appraisement of Sam Smith. And page three is annual return for, you know, Sally Jones. You don't necessarily know what's in the book based upon the title alone, but if it came from probate court, it's going to contain something 
that might be of interest to you. Right. And we have another question coming out. If one finds an estate inventory, does that mean that there was also a will someplace else? And the reason this question is being asked, because they have found they have yet to find any wills. And wondering if maybe this is possibly the Civil War may have have affected that. What's your thought on that? Okay. Um, Half of the people who died as slave owners didn't leave wills. If you don't find a will, as I say, I've never been concerned if I don't find a will because I find that the uh, non-testate estates are are a lot more fun and have more records. But if, if you're wondering whether possibly there was a will and it's missing, the, easy, the, the quick and easy rule of thumb would be look and see what the title is of the person who submitted the inventory and appraisement. Did he or she call himself an executor? In that case, that person was probably executing a will. So there is a will somewhere. If the person is calling him or herself an administrator or administratrix, then there was no will. Now, that's not a hard and fast rule, but that's the, e- that's the easiest, quick and dirty way to tell. Um, sometimes people will, will mis- misstate their titles, but for the most part, they're, they're pretty good about it. An executor or executrix is dealing with a will. An administrator and administratrix is managing property that does not have a will. Okay, so suppose you just think, well, there was a will, but I can't find it. Um, there, there are other records that I really am not talking about in this in this talk because you won't find any slave information in them. Because we're really, but if you were to go to the um, probate court, same court, look for the uh, administrators' bonds or the executors' bonds. These are books in which the only purpose was to get the executor or the administrator to come and to pledge a bond saying. You know, I am going to administer this estate, you know, in a, in, in, in a correct manner, and I'm not going to squander the, the, the uh, uh, property of this estate, and I hereby pledge $10,000. Kind of like, you know, a bond in, in court, court today. You're pledging that if I don't do what I'm supposed to do, then you, you can come and get, get me for $10,000. And, the, and usually the amount of the bond was based upon the estimated value of the estate. And, and so you can tell if, if, by looking at the bond books, was this person appointed an, exec, an executor or an administrator, an executrix or an administratrix, you know, man or woman. Um, actually, there's bond books and then there's also um, the appointment books. Appointment books are bond books. They both tell you the same thing as far as this is concerned. Was this person appointed as an administrator or an executor? And if it is, if it was an executor, then there's a will. If it is an administrator, there was not. I know that was a very, very lengthy reply, but does that help the, the uh, question? Absolutely, yes. Okay. So um, we're still on, let me see, vouchers. Vouchers... Um, may be recorded in books, sometimes not. As I said, um, if you have loose papers, always check the loose papers because, for example, in Georgia, the state law didn't require vouchers to be recorded until beginning in 1851. 
So it doesn't mean they didn't exist before 1851. It just means that, that nobody required the clerks to record them in a book. And if you aren't going to be paid to record something in a book, you're not going to do it, right? So clerks always record stuff that they're required to record by law, and they don't, much as we would like to believe that, that they realize that their purpose in life was to record genealogical information for us to use. They didn't know that. Um, so if the law didn't tell them to do it, they, they weren't going to do it. Okay. Um, so, we're, oh, we were up to, we got up to sale of land and Negroes, which is generally something that, uh, that might happen with an estate with a will, or the division of Negroes. The division of Negroes was basically um, dividing the the slaves up into groups of approximately equal value, depending on how many heirs there were. Then what would they would do? They would write a number in a hat, uh, a run, number on a piece of paper, put, fold them up, put them in a hat, hold them up in the air where people couldn't peek, and then the representatives for the heirs would each pull a number out of a hat. That, that's how they would do it. And then you'd look at what number you got on your piece of paper, and that was your share. Now, sometimes the heirs might do a little horse trading after they see who they got, you know, if they wanted to swap people you know, for whatever reason. But generally, um, you, you would take the share that you got, and that would be it. Now, you would know if there was horse trading, don't worry about it, because the other thing you're going to see in the record books is the receipts, the receipts from heirs and guardians. These are the, the final thing that, that the executor executrix is going to get from those heirs. This is the receipt for their share of the property. You're going to, in these receipts, in, in a slaveholding estate, you're going to, once again, find the names of the slaves that each heir got. You can compare that list on the receipt with the uh, list in the division. You can compare it with the list in the annual returns for the hire of Negroes. You can compare it with the inventory and appraisement list. And if there was a will, you can compare it with anybody that might possibly have been named in a will. So you have all these different lists that you can compare. Now, if there was some horse trading done after the division, and that might explain why the receipt might not name exactly the same people who are in the shares. That was, But that's okay, because now you, from the receipt, you know what the final status was of who went where. So we come that then to the end of... The, the administration or the execution of an estate. Oh, but one more thing, one more thing. If only for wills, some um, people, particularly if a man died and wanted to leave something for his wife and wanted her to have a big chunk of his estate during her life, he very often would say, I hereby leave and then, you know, list, you know, I leave my farm and my animals and, and the following slaves for my, my beloved wife during her life or widowhood. Sometimes it might just say during her life, but usually it would say life or widowhood. So she gets this chunk of property for as long as she lives or remains a widow. This is called a life estate. But, um, that's a, you know, an informal term for it. She gets that part of the estate for her life. Now, does she get to do whatever she wants with it? Does she get to, like, leave it to whoever she wants? No, she doesn't. When she dies, or in the case of if, if it's restricted to her widowhood, if she remarries, 
when she marries again, then all the property that she got in this life estate goes back to the original estate. When she dies, it all goes back to the original estate. Now, this could be, depending on how long the widow lives, it could be a year because, you know, some, for some reason, wives often died within a year of their husbands. It might be 10 years. It might be 20 years. But, but if you see in the will that the, that the widow received a life estate, look for when she died. And you hope that she died during slavery because then you'll get these records. If she died after emancipation, you're out of luck. But um, when the widow dies or remarries, this stuff reverts to the original estate, and they have to call up the original executor or executrix if they're still alive. If they have died in the meantime, they have to, the court has to appoint a different person, and that property that, that was with the widow now gets uh, probated um, as part of the original slave owner's property and is distributed uh, in accordance with the terms of the will, and you will find records of it, not in the, not in the name of the widow, you will find the estate property probated under the name of the original slave owner, but it will happen after she dies or marries. So that's what happens with a life estate. So that's why if you see a will that gives a, a widow a life estate, and, you know, and, and, this, and the, people that, the, the people that she got as her share are people that you are interested in tracking or tracing, you darn well want to find out when she died because those people are then, and, and, the, and any children that were born to them, are going to pop up again. Maybe like 10 years later or whatever, it'll be in the probate records, and it'll be handled just like the original estate. Now, that's only for um, estates with wills, because estates without wills couldn't make a life estate because there was no will to make it. So uh, you don't have that problem with, uh, uh, oh, not you don't have that opportunity. A problem, opportunity, depending which way, you know, glass half full. Um, <laughs> depending on. Well, David, on there is it, a question yep. coming out of the right. chat. Now, during slavery, if a daughter inherits slaves and she gets married, does the slave retain the surname of the original slave owner or assume the surname of the daughter's husband? Okay. Um course, this is a question, but it is a social question about surnames. So th this will – you, will you have me back to talk about surnames sometime? Absolutely. All right. Thank you. I'm, I'm sorry to beg you on air like that. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I, that's one of my favorite My subjects. pleasure. <laughs> All right. Um, the slaves use surnames in slavery based upon the following kinds of factors. Where geographically in the United States were they? Were they in an upper, and we're talking about the antebellum period, you know, in the, in the, the, the um, early to mid-1800s. Not, I'm not even talking about colonial days, but we're talking about the antebellum period like the last 65 years of slavery until the end of the Civil War. Um, surnames of course, were not legal names um, because slaves couldn't make legal contracts, but obviously slaves had names just like everybody else. Now, a slave would use the name which made the best social sense for him or her. 
So you will find that some, you usually don't know what, what names a slave used until after emancipation when they show up in free records and they're using a first and last name. And then you will see that the last name may correspond to that person's last slave owner. Or the name might correspond to the person's previous owner. Or the person is married or uh, um, a child of a woman whose husband was living on a different farm probably will correspond with the name of the father's slave owner. Now, you notice I didn't say that the slaves took the slave owner's name. I think that's putting the masters at the center of of uh, naming conventions. Um, I said that the names correspond with. So, for example, if a slave is um, if, if a male slave is known socially by the name of his slave master, and I will tell you that Houston Hartsfield Holloway, the book, the, the guy whose book I recently edited. Um, when he's talking about his days in as slavery in the in the heart of Georgia, the persons that he talks about and gives surnames to, those are the surnames of the slave masters that they belonged to at the time. In fact, he refers to himself in one story as as uh, uh, Houston Freeman, because he was at that time owned by a person named Freeman. Of course, after emancipation, he took Houston Hartsfield Holloway. So he didn't use Freeman, but during slavery, he was known as Freeman. Um, now, there are folks who have researched in other parts of the country, and there's a guy up in uh, uh, who, who's researched the border states up in uh, Maryland, uh, um, uh, wherever, who, who says that slaves never use the names of their slave masters. Well, you don't know. And it's not like they're using the names of the slave masters. It's whatever made sense to the slaves at the time. Um, right. you, you look at If you look at the, uh, if you look at the records, uh, look at veterans' applications for pensions. And I looked at, uh, there are about 30 people from the heart of Georgia in Upson County who were veterans at the end of the Civil War, put in for federal pensions afterwards. And they're asking, were you ever known, who was your last slave owner? Uh, and they said, were you ever known by other, any other name, blah, blah. And they would say, during slavery, I was known as uh, Weaver. But after slavery, I took the name of my father. So it's based upon family relationships of the slave, not necessarily rigidly on, I belong to this person, therefore I'm going to take this name. It whatever socially made sense. There's another guy who was also a veteran who said, I have been known as uh, uh, Charlie, I forget I forget the name, but I'll just, it doesn't matter what the name was. He's, I've been known uh, as Charlie Weaver. Uh, when I was freed, I took the name of my father, Charlie Daniel, but everyone still calls me Charlie Weaver anyway. So that's what I go for. Right. So, right. You know, it, well, we're it, coming. It, yes. Yeah. This is a this is a discussion that I think we could talk about for a very long time, and right. so I want to thank you for addressing that particular issue. 
But when it comes back to, you know, the records of the probate for a typical slaveholding estate, we're getting right. close to the end of the show. So Uh-oh. what? let's wrap it all up. Yes, believe it or not, yep. it's close to the end of the show. So, uh, you know, people have been listening to you. And so what what do you want people to really understand where they need to go from here now that they've heard what you've had to say? Keep in mind, if you haven't researched in probate records before, they are county records. There is a there is a court in that or was a court in that county that was responsible for probate actions, and you need to know the laws of the state to figure out which that which court that was, and that's where your records are going to be. And keep in mind that probate of an estate was done for a specific purpose which was to carry out the the terms of a will, or if there was no will, and very often, at least half the time, there was no will, or it was to conserve, preserve, and manage the property of an estate when there was no will, and to carry that property through certain steps, beginning with inventory and appraisement, um, the various management concerns, that are listed in the annual returns and then leading eventually to the final division of the estate, whether it's by drawing lotteries out of lots out of a hat or whether it was by sale, and that this is a process that follows a set of steps with a, with a specific purpose, which was to divide the estate among heirs. And that if you know what those what the intent was and you know how to find in the jurisdiction that you're talking about, which is state and county, you know how to find what court it was um, and be on, be on the lookout for all these records that are in the little guide that you, uh, that you provide the link for. By the way, one page is, the, is the, uh, the diagram, and then the other page was the brief description that describes each of the kinds of records that I have been going on and on about. So that is... That is what uh, I would like everyone to take away from that. There's a process, there was a purpose, and you can make those purposes and that process work for you by looking in these records for the kinds of information that will help you um, surface the, the enslaved people from these estates by name, by relationship, and, uh, and be able to, to find out, to ring every bit of information that you can out of these records to provide yourself the most information about them. And that's about it. Well, thank you so much. And, David, we have a, a, a recommended session. And it's uh, what happens when there's a fight between the heirs. Okay. And what we can find in those records, which would be a very – interesting session indeed yes and well, those, those are very much say, fun yes yes yeah those are, yes. Those are great in, in because fact, they you're will being asked the... to come back for part two. Oh, it'll only take another hour okay 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 <laughs> then we will definitely continue this discussion with a part two and i hope listeners you have been given your orders go out review a will review the probate records really 
you know, analyze them. Because David has told us there's so much to find in those records. Believe me, you will be so pleased. So, you know, good evening, everyone. Thank you so much, David Patterson, for joining us tonight. And please remember, everybody, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, probate records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and AfroGenius.com Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday. Thank you so very much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice Beebe's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC. And my website is www.geniebeeroots.com. So I look forward to everyone joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, David. Good night, Bernice. Thank you.